0: So we keep on keeping on. Hey, little humans. I'm Norma Jean, and welcome to Stay Wild, the podcast about how to keep your quirks in the wondrous world. This is episode number 30, and today we're talking to Michael Oliver, poet, performer, educator, writer, who's based out of D.C. Michael and I are in a play together in Oroville, India, in Tamil Nadu in the south of India, And I wanted to talk to Michael about his journey in terms of theater, his creative journey, and what makes Washington DC so unique, because it's a really international city. Really exciting stuff. So I'm so excited to share my conversation with Michael here with you today. A little bit of Michael's journey. And as usual, if you're liking the show, subscribe, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. If you're feeling Bali and you're an empowered woman who wants to level up, come for Camp Clarity. Check out all the details at www.joincampclarity. That's J-O-I-N. C-A-M-P-C-L-A-R-I-T-Y dot com. And here we go. All right, humans, we're live from India today, and we're speaking to Michael Oliver, who is a poet, performer, educator, and writer. Welcome to Stay Wild, Michael.
1: I'm happy to be
0: here. So we're here in India because... Uh, we're both in a play which is really exciting about Orson Welles and you're playing the title character um, But I want to talk a little bit about your journey in terms of your creative process What you do and how you got to where you are now How did you start on your creative process?
1: How did I start on my creative process? Well, I started off as a poet And that was way back like 15, 16 years old Okay All right. I had um, I read Steppenwolf Mm -hmm. by Hermann Hesse, right? And though I I don't know how much of it I actually comprehended at 15 or 16, I definitely connected with it, right? And I immediately wrote, started writing poetry afterwards, right? And so, yeah, I was a poet for many years. Um, When I say many, I mean all the way up into university, college, And then about when I was a sophomore in college, that's when I started doing theater. Um, And I entered theater more as a playwright because I had had this idea for a play. And I didn't really know that much about theater at that point.
2: What was the play?
1: It was called The Juggler. Right. And it was really sort of this very strange, metaphysical, symbolic play about, probably more about my identity and my persona because everything was symbolic in it, nothing was really practical, physical, or tangible. Mm-hmm. Right? So I <clears throat> started taking theater courses, acting courses, because I'm a by nature I'm an extreme introvert. I'm right? <clears throat> um, usually very reticent around people. I don't really share much. It takes me a long time to get to know people. Hmm. I had to be very comfortable with them, um, <clears throat> but you know the acting. So I I, I went at I, I approached acting very much as someone who was in a foreign territory, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> and so the just the skill of acting, it it really was a skill that I could learn. It wasn't by any means a natural talent. Right, my natural state of mind is to be s- sedentary, to sort of ver- journey within. Um,
2: it's more and, of a writer.
1: Well, archetype. yeah, or a, more of a, I guess, a more of a sort of a mystical poet, I would say, you know, where you really are just swirling within your own sort of imaginative depths, right? <clears throat> the external world was something that was, uh, I approached with extreme caution.
2: Mm, but you, because you created your own internal
1: world. Right, right. Right, but I, you know, but, you know, so I started studying theater really because I became curious about the external world, really. Right, right. Interact, uh, interacting with the external world with people, right, in a more um, fluid way, more sensible way, because again, I'm I'm very, I'm still not very good at parties and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I've learned something. Who some is? The, who's oh, great there at are parties. some people that are extremely good at parties. No,
2: I'm they very get, good yeah. at parties, but still, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly. What you,
1: mean. <laughs> you know, so, uh, small talk is not something that I'm very good at. But although I'm, I'm good at asking people questions now, hmm. so I can engage <laughs> in conversation. I can ask them what they do, or ask them you know, right. what their latest creative project was, and get them talking. Then interact
2: with them. About Does it well. ever relate to your writing and how you develop characters? Does what? The question asking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, question asking, I think, is, is one of my fortes. Even as an educator, I'm a, uh, at the University of Maryland, and I, mm-hmm. I teach at the University of Maryland. I teach professional writing, which involves a lot of knowing what kinds of questions to ask. Mm. Right? So I'm constantly working with my, in my classes with my students on how to explore a topic by asking questions and not assuming that you know the answers to anything. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, questions, sort of, the the realm of questions is the realm I'm very comfortable in. So I'm very comfortable with not knowing, Hmm. right? In fact, I assume I don't know anything about the external world at all. And that's sort of...
2: That's a pretty smart way to go about things. (laughs) (laughs) What kinds of questions do you like to ask? When you're exploring a topic or you're writing a character, what are some exploratory questions that you that you maybe are your go-tos?
1: Well, a lot of them are, you know, the, the initial ones are very much your journalistic questions, who, what, when, where, why, mm. how, you know. But then as I get more information, I'll explore in more depth. I, you know, um, so at some level, I'm more like a, a detective, whether it's a detective of what actually happened or it's a detective of what are you actually thinking or what are you actually, you know. Mm. Uh, And as a director in theater, I mean, I I very much use the question format. I very seldom tell actors what's happening. I ask them questions, right? Because it makes, you know, I have found that when I do theater, particularly as a director, you know, it makes very little difference what I think is happening. It makes much more difference what the actor or the performer thinks. Now, I definitely have a vision, and so the questions I ask are usually related to how I see the play, um, but sometimes I'll just, you know the director, the actor will present an answer to a question that I had not seen, and then I'll sort of tweak my vision in accordance with their answer.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, so you've been directing plays for maybe thirty years plus.
1: Thirty years plus. Yeah, so, a long time. Yeah, my first play was back when I was like twenty one. Um, so yeah, so it's forty years plus. Forty years yeah. plus.
2: All right. And what do you believe the role of a director actually is?
1: the role of the director i mean you i, I mean the director clearly is the conductor right you know cuz i mean the director has to have sort of the overarching sort of idea for the production in mind the big
2: picture vision the big
1: picture vision now my big picture visions are usually not i don't go in and tell the set designer what the set looks like but I go in and tell the set designer what the dynamics of the set needs to be, what it needs to evoke, you know, and I very much approach the actor in the same way. I I don't go in and tell the actor this is what the character is, but ultimately there are certain relationships that need to be in the play, there are certain dynamics that need to occur in order for the play to work. So I I have an overarching vision, but usually it's around concept or idea, Mm. right? And so the... I very much like to be surprised by what any one of the other any creative partner has, because the director really is not a creative artist. It's more of a sort of the vision artist. You know, the director really is not responsible for creating any particular thing on stage. They have the actors that create the characters, the designer. So, yeah, I'm simply the conductor, the orchestra.
2: Okay, yeah, I, uh, I heard a quote years back in business school about how, um, I, think, I think it was one of the large oil companies, they had their executives go and sit in with an orchestra, and um, you know they asked, they asked the conductor, what's your job? And he said, my job isn't really to do anything. They could all do it without me, but they do it better with me.
1: Right. Yeah. I, and, yeah. And, that's, and that is definitely the role of the director. Now... It is very possible for the director to completely screw up everything <laughs> so it's a very it's a very I, I consider it sort of like <clears throat> it's a very dangerous role to play because if you you can really mess people up right you can sort of give them wrong information you can if you if you force them in a certain direction that's sort of antithetical to their their um, sort of innate sort of psychological sort of orientation then you spend weeks sort of going on a path that's a dead end and then mm. everything gets fouled up and then you've got to try to erase all that and that's so it's, it's it's a very delicate it's almost like an operation in that sense you want to make sure you're not in any way harming the fouling organs up with, well fouling up sort of the natural process that mm. is a, that needs to occur right when people are creating something right because ultimately creativity is I think is a, it, there is a certain sort of natural, organic process that occurs, right? But it all originates ultimately from within, and then it begins to interact with others, particularly in the theater, realm of theater.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you, you've written poetry, you've directed quite a number of plays, you teach writing, but you also write as well. Right. So what is your creative process when it comes to writing?
1: When it comes to writing... Um,
2: and we are here in India, so there are going <laughs> to be motorbikes, maybe barking dogs. I don't know if you guys can hear the birds and the bugs, but we're definitely out here in rural India, in Tamil Nadu in the south. So I'm glad to bring you guys here with us, but there are going to be a couple little noise things. So what is your creative process as a writer?
1: Well, let me, let me start as a, as a writer of poetry,
2: because
1: hmm. I think, you know... Depending upon what I'm writing, each pro- the process changes, right? So when I'm writing poetry, when I'm writing plays, when I'm writing reviews, when I'm writing any, something that's more critical analysis or something, you know, I consider all of that creative. In fact, I, I, several years ago I realized that I, was, I call, began calling myself a creativist, right? I think now that, I've seen that term on the internet now, but as a creativist, I, I realize that no matter what I do, I approach it in this spirit of creativity, mm. right? In other words, for me, the, the creative process, it, well, anyone can create at any time, right? but ultimately when you're talking about the creative process, you're hoping to create something that is actually achieving the objective whatever the medium is and whatever the goal of the work of art is
2: hmm.
1: right do you
2: always have the goal in mind first or sometimes do you get the do you get the jolt the lightning bolts of of inspiration well,
1: i mean with with poetry it's very i don't usually have a goal in mind right i will simply alight like a like a butterfly on a particular hmm. branch and you get I'll,
2: the spark yeah
1: you know but then i'll just let that environment or that initial impulse sort of take me where it it goes. So it is a very free-form exploration at first. Now, like this morning I was working on this poem that I've been working on for the last five years. It's a rather lengthy poem in about 25 parts. you know, And I was just looking at it today, after you know five years later, and I've gone back to it on numerous occasions and revised it, you know, because ultimately... With a poem, I mean, sometimes you have this sort of initial inspiration and the poem almost forms itself perfectly on that first sort of jolt. Yeah, that's, right. how, but, I, that's how I write poems. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> but very rarely does, is that, does that occur successfully, right? And particularly with something longer. Yeah,
2: right? with long form, oh my gosh. You
1: know, because <clears throat> ultimately you need to, the initial jolt frequently will, it's like opening the door, but a realized poem, you have to go through the door. Right? So each time I revisit a poem, I get further into the passageway. And sometimes I'll get, ultimately, the goal is to get into the room itself. And that's where you can paint or fulfill the, the poem. So I, I approach poetry now very much the way I approach a, a role, where rehearsing it, An revising acting role. it, yeah. where you keep returning to, the, returning to that spot, right? Keep re uh, entering the space of the poem ultimately the creative process requires this sort of surrender to whatever the imaginative world that the poem or the play or whatever is attempting to create Hmm. right um if you don't if you're not willing to enter that space right then you You get weird yeah you can't really finish the poem you can't really finish any work of art if you're not willing to surrender yourself to the dynamics of that world the more you try to control it the, the more you resist entering it, right? Mm-hmm. So control really is a... It's almost a misnomer, I think, when you're dealing with the creative process. Because, I mean, you, obviously you have to remain in control. There is some kind of control in operation, right? <clears throat> but it's, it's the kind of control that... It's like muscle memory. It's the kind of control you... You know, if you've developed enough craft and experience, you can surrender yourself and ultimately still remain articulate, still remain clear-headed, and all those things that you need to be in order to really realize a a work of art without going bonkers.
2: Yeah, and I think what you said about entering the tunnel is really interesting, you know, and, and surrendering in terms of creating the conditions and creative conditions. What do you need to create?
1: Well, I mean, you need to have you personally what I what I need you and then
0: what do you also (laughs) tell other people? Yeah, I want both.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, I need I need some solitude. You need solitude. Um, I need solitude. You know, and I need to have enough sort of time. Sort of at either end that allows me to sort of free myself from any constraints in the external world, right? I mean, like right now, I even I do little short little thing. I write some original stuff, but very short, and I don't worry. I'm not trying to finish anything. But revising is different, you know. But <clears throat> but but I because I right now I'm just uh, in this new environment. I'm really not. Sort of liberated to.
2: Oh, because we're in India. Yes. Yeah, in India. Yeah. Yeah, in India. we're out here. environment.
1: I'm not like settled, and I'm mm. not. You know.
2: This is your first time really spending an extended period abroad.
1: Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I have spent some. Right many in Mexico years ago, with in Mexico. your
2: family. Yeah, yeah. But um,
1: so I need that solitude. Mm. Right. And then, I mean, if you're if you're going to create authentically, right? I mean, you can create. If, as long as you have solitude, you can just create, right? But, it, but authentic creation, you do have to, you have to do enough research on either the, the topics or the things that exist within that world, the behaviors that exist within that world. In other words, you have to familiarize yourself as much as possible with those elements that, might ent- that need to enter that imaginative space Prior to going into that imaginative
2: space, whether whether you create them yourself in an imaginary world, right, like J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, or whether you actually do research on a specific topic,
1: right, right, right. So yeah, I mean, so if you were going to do what Rowling's, you know, you'd have to have some familiarity with sorcery. Probably the more research you do on historically the practice of sorcery, the more likely that within the creative world of uh, that she's creating. Whatever she creates in related to sorcery will have more authenticity because it will reverberate with the historical definition of sorcery. Right. Right. So, yeah, research is very important, you know, whatever that research is. Uh, Now, you don't want to, you're not bound by the research, but you're informed by it. And with Orson Welles. I, can't, I can go in, I can create any kind of Orson Welles I want.
0: The play
2: we're doing right now is called <laughs> Obediently Yours, Orson Welles, and right. Michael is playing Orson. Welles. Right,
1: so I could just jump right in and play some character that looks like, you know, that I think is Orson mm. Welles, that would have nothing to do with Orson Welles if I haven't done the research. So right. you're trying to do, I try to do enough of the research so that my creative energies will ultimately swirl around some of that information. So that part, of that's a very important part of the process as well, the research Mm. part. Um, And then I I really, I mean, then there is the, as I mentioned before, the rehearsing part, the revising part, to sort of try to gain as much sort of external awareness as possible of what you created, which I think is extremely difficult to do sometimes where you're mean I mean as an actor you're, you have to be in the moment and you have to just create and you just hope that what you're creating is working. You have your director there that will give you feedback and you can trust your director to a certain extent, some more, some less, whatever. but ultimately you've got to trust that what you're doing is is effective. but you know the more you rehearse something and the more you you just you understand the dynamics of stage, the dynamics of character and relations the more you can sort of get a sense of it from yourself. Because I've done a lot of one-man shows without a director.
2: Did you write them yourself?
1: No, no. These were actually, I, for the last five years, I've been forming a lot of poetry, mm. right? <clears throat> so, but I've been doing it in a theatrical, a theatrical context, you know. But you're, as a, when you're directing yourself, you, you still surrender and you're just in the now, but then you step out and you begin to evaluate the shifts that you can make or how, what kind of impression it might be making on an audience All right and then on <clears throat> so yeah so but so that's that third eye where you 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 you, you know enough about what you've done and, and sort of how the, the stage works or how any particular medium works so that you can look at it and evaluate it yeah. so you have the surrendering process, the research process, the surrender, the rehearsal and then the critique.
2: So it's a process. <laughs> it is
1: definitely a process. <laughs>
2: Fantastic. And what made you fall in love with theater? What was it about theater that you just...
1: Well, I mean, the, the, why I love theater and why I continue to love theater has to do with the creative process of a collective. I mean, as a poet, I was very... I loved just the process of me creating and entering that creative spirit, that creative sort of space where anything is possible when you're exploring things that are dangerous, psychologically strange that are within you, you know, because each of us is a universe of the familiar and the unfamiliar, Mm. (laughs) the happy and the despotic, whatever, Mm. right? And so as an individual, I was very familiar with that, but I became interested in and I fell in love with sort of the process of working with others within that creative spirit. Right? So like, uh, you know, now it, sometimes it takes a while to really get the, a company of people, an ensemble of people, or even just two people sort of familiar enough with each other, comfortable enough with each other, so that they can begin to actually interact with one another in a way that's creative, hmm. right? Because ultimately, creative requires a level of abandon, right? But abandon and a, a level of abandon that allows forces within each of the participants to come out, interact with another person, have that person not think it's strange, not simply pull back, but simply take it and deal with whatever they're getting, right? <clears throat> you know and then have those interactions work and, and develop, and, and then to be able to repeat those interactions, because they have to be authentic, they have to be real, they have to be as if for the first time each time, and yeah, so that so that sort of ensemble creative spirit is um, is why I love theater, and to, try to sort of try to reach that. Now, professional theater, when you have three weeks to do a show or something, you know, you can only simulate sort of The creative spirit, you know, Um, you can do all your work at home and have your creative interaction come in, and you just do it, and it can be orchestrated. But usually, it's not in the same kind of.
2: I think it's the difference more between writing music as a band or learning the music and coming together and doing a very succinct rehearsal. Right. I think it's a little bit more um, organized, and I once you get to that professional level, I find that there are fewer opportunities to get weird and really come into that space of true collaboration and creation because a lot of the time when you get to that level, you're so busy, right? And you have your own process. And then you come in with the time that you have, doing the work that you've done on your own. Yeah, it's very interesting. Right.
1: But that's one reason why. I mean, over the last five or six years, I've gone to a lot of jazz concerts Clubs, you know, and I, I, I just love jazz because they, they seem to bring the creative process right there in front of the
2: audience. Well, jazz is where you're watching the
1: creative process. <laughs> no, you know, you're, and, you're you know, watching
2: and things get made. And they in just, front they of, have a, they have a
1: wonderful trust of each other and camaraderie with each other. You know, and I don't know if they ever just get pissed at each other or not. You know, they're like, "What in the hell are you doing?" <laughs> they do, they do. I sing jazz, and they do. But they always seem to go with it, even if they, you, know. <laughs> they you know
2: it's interesting. Jazz for me, you know, having sung and gotten to sit in with incredible jazz bands, um, jazz is a language, and it's all about communication, and sometimes you get to a point where someone talks over other people and you get to a point where someone doesn't speak up or you get to a point where there's an awkward silence, but it's about hearing and, uh, what you want to say and saying it in the way that you want to say it. I Mm -hmm. think that for me is what the best jazz is. And, and once you can understand the language, when you watch world-class jazz musicians you know, you, you're watching them have this beautiful conversation and it's, you know, and and, and most very good jazz musicians, it's different with a singer versus without a singer because without a singer, they're, you know, they're, they're talking to each other, they're back and forth. And with the singer, it's a little bit harder because the focus is, is centered in a different place Mm -hmm. and uh, the support is centered in a different place. And yeah, it's interesting, but Oh, I'm a, I'm a fan of jazz. I could talk about it all day long, all day, every day, forever. Um, and so, you did you grow up in a creative family?
1: Did I grow up in a creative family? Uh, you know, oddly enough, I don't think I have very little memory of a lot of creativity happening when I was growing up. Well, I mean, I mean, just just I mean, I grew up. My father was a warden.
2: Yes, yes. A, a I've heard warden. this before. Your father was a prison warden.
1: Yeah, in a maximum security prison in, plantation in Virginia, okay. in the United States.
2: And when abouts did you grow up? 1960s? 50s, well, yeah, 60s?
1: yeah, 50s, 60s. And, you know, I, I moved back and forth from Richmond, Virginia to out to the prison f- farm out in what is a place called Goochland county in Virginia. Goochland. 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 Okay. Gooch. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, and, and, uh, there wasn't a lot of creativity when I was growing up. Now, oddly enough, my oldest brother is a painter, not a professional painter, but he has painted his whole life, and he still, um, he just had a show of watercolors, hmm. you know, in, in Richmond. My s- oldest sister is a quilt maker. All right, uh, my father in the last years of his life wrote his memoir, and then wrote a. He got his grandfather's recipes from Maine, and he created a little Maine cookbook with little prison stories, sort of connected to each of the dishes. <laughs> so um, the creative impulse was there after growing up, but I'm not certain where you know from where that came. I have no idea because growing up there wasn't a lot of creativity. It's more, much more practical, much more, you know, dealing with day-to-day life, right? Right. But now the family is very very sort of creatively engaged. My oldest sister has won awards for some of her quilts because they're very original, you know, and they don't just follow your normal quilt-making pattern or whatever.
2: Yeah. Quilting is an incredible American tradition. Mm -hmm. And for those of you at home, it's where, um, each of the patches on the quilt, uh, tells a part of a story, I believe. And so the entire quilt is like a book in some ways, like a visual storytelling tool. And it's, it's an incredible, um, American tradition and it's, it's really quite amazing. So you grew up in this environment that wasn't really, maybe very, it was very nourishing, but wasn't creatively stimulating. But you had started writing poetry at 15. hmm And then, where did you go to college?
1: Um, Virginia Tech. Okay. Which out in the mountains of Virginia.
2: And that is where you started acting in plays, taking theater, and doing this play in college?
1: Yes. Okay. Right, yeah. That's where, I mean, and I started off, I mean, again, my initial impulse was playwright. But also and this is sort of how sometimes life goes in circles, I also, fairly soon after starting theater, I had the idea of performing poetry on the stage. And I remember meeting with this mime artist to discuss performing uh, Theodore Retke's The Lost Sons, which is this longer poem. (coughs) We had several meetings, but... I quickly, or we both began to realize that what I was hoping to achieve by this thing was too vague, too innocuous, too strange, and she was a mime artist going, like, what is it you want me to do? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but then, you know, 40 years later, I'm going back to Poe, I'm going to uh, Walt Whitman, and then lastly to Ginsberg and performing their poetry. So I've finally returned to the performance of poetry in a very sort of theatrical context, mm-hmm. making it meaningful and significant to a hearing audience. Because, I mean, I mean, now in, in America there's a lot of slam poetry, there's a lot of performance poetry. But taking classical poetry and sort of bringing it back to the, its oral tradition, because mm-hmm. it ultimately was a very oral form, um, I've enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, I'm not certain if that's answering whatever question you're asking. No, it definitely does. <laughs> um,
2: and you and, and Jill, who is the theater director of the Orville Theater Group here that we're working with, had a theater in D.C. Yes. Quite a few years ago.
1: Back in the 80s, 1983 is when we first met, and I was Jill, myself, and then my wife. She wasn't my wife then, Elizabeth Bruce. Yeah, we formed a group called the Sanctuary Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the beginning of the Ronald Reagan years, and so we formed a theater that was gonna. We called a theater of conscience. Um, so our specialty was to try to, and this is sort of again comes out of my roots in theater, because I mean there was the creative process, but then ultimately I I fell in love with theater because theater ultimately rep- is a way for a community, to speak of itself, right, <clears throat> and so I. I didn't feel like there was any theater in D.C. that really spoke of what D.C. was, or, or at that time, or what D.C. is. In other words, there frequently it was for tourists, or frequently it was for maybe a small slice or segment of sort of the more moneyed population. And so I wanted a theater that really tried to speak of what, of of what D.C. is in, in its in its diversity, right. And so it started off more as a um, sort of interracial theater, because at that point, D.C. is like 70% African-American, and there's simply there's no African-American theater. There are no plays that deal with African-Americans, except maybe in some African-American churches or something like that.
2: So very niche.
1: Yes, right? Now, back in the late 60s, early 70s, there had been some theaters, that uh, Arena Stage, for example, that might be known. That your audience might know, uh, one of the first sort of non-profit theaters in America, they had they had an inter, they had done interracial mm-hmm. casting, right? <clears throat> so anyway, so the theater started off sort of as a way of sort of bring sort of a multiracial sort of productions, right, and develop a multiracial audience. As we developed over over the over the next five or six years, we moved more towards sort of capturing the The real diversity of D.C., which is that it's at that time it was even then at that time was beginning to become an international city, with a lot of uh, Latinos, with because of the embassies there there were there was Ethiopians there were Egyptians I mean there was just a vast sort of uh, people from all over the world there right so we tried to. Touch as many different communities and populations as possible, and I guess our hope was to develop a a small audience that was sort of multicultural in nature um, did no. that happen It was beginning to happen, but the funding for that was was stra- was was difficult yeah um,
2: um, and we, But yeah
1: it was, it was beginning to happen, but then you know the the price of the real estate started to go up, and it was. Time to try something else, you know. But the sanctuary theater is still in existence. Mm. There's still a sanctuarytheater.org. Mm. <laughs> and then in recent years, I've started a, a something called the Performing Knowledge Project, where we perform. This is where I do my poetry, but also I've performed. We perf- we, we presented prose, short stories, mm. in their original form on stage with multiple voices for the various narrators in the piece, the various characters. And that's called PerformingKnowledge.org.
2: Fantastic. And you've lived in Virginia and the D.C. metropolitan area for most of your adult life. Oh, yes. And how has the theater scene changed around that?
1: Okay. Um, As
2: society has changed, as it's become more international, especially with the current political climate in D.C.?
1: Well, I mean, that actually, I have a Ph.D. in theater and my dissertation is actually on the changing of DC theater from 1970, the creation of the NRA, uh, not the NRA, the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, up until basically Washington DC became uh, an equity town. right? Because 1970s, you had the establishment of the Kennedy Center, which is the sort of national theater performing arts institution of America.
2: And they give out awards every year the Kennedy Center honors and they honor people who've contributed I think throughout the arts. Right.
1: And yeah. their uh, original, initial vision was to bring groups from all over the country, even community groups all over the country to bring them to the Kennedy Center so that it would be a sort of a place where the national performing arts could be seen. Mm-hmm. Now I mean, they, they, that, that vision has long since fallen away But they still sometimes bring in professional troops from Chicago or professional troops from L.A. or where have you. They come in and perform, Um, and all the big sort of Broadway touring shows perform there. Um, You know, and then then they have a a yearly sort of international festival, whether it's from Japan or whether it's from the sort of you know Sweden or Norway or whatever. All right. But anyway, so in the 1970s, there was a lot of sort of what you would call community theater. There was um, the the university theater at the the Catholic University of America was big, the Hartke Theater. But now we have in D.C. there are at least a dozen equity houses.
2: And for those... Humans at home, can you talk a little bit about equity versus non-equity for people who aren't in the theater world?
1: Today? Okay, well, I mean, equity is the is the union for actors, uh, for theater actors. You know, when a theater becomes equity, obviously the actors get paid a, a living wage, <laughs> which I am all for. They get health insurance, right? But you have to have a, a good deal of money, And it right?
2: increases the cost of the production. And I think also some theaters are so small that it doesn't financially make sense for them to be able to, they can't actually pay the amount of money that the same actor would get playing, you know, at a huge 1,200-person theater.
1: Right, right. Now, I mean, in, in D.C. today, there are probably 80 to 90 theaters that are operating. You know, a couple dozen are equity houses, there are still the small troops that perform... You know, there's just a lot of theater activity in the greater metropolitan area, um, so it's a very—it's probably the third largest theater town in the country now, right? There's New York, Chicago, but then I think probably DC is the next one, and DC you might you might even say rivals Chicago in terms of theater. So there's—I mean—there's I mean, there's just an enormous amount of activity. There's a lot of troops from all over the world, all over the country that come to D.C. now. Um, theater is very expensive still, uh, or is very expensive, but it's a very vibrant town in terms of if you want to see theater, there's a lot of theater to see. Now, you won't necessarily see too much experimental work. You won't see any sort of sort of the avant-garde kind of stuff you might see in New York at a small sort of off-off Broadway sh- space. Um, but you can, you know, if you... If you look hard enough, sometimes even those strange kind of performance art pieces appear in D.C. Um, because D.C. is a what they call a bourgeois town. (laughs) But anyway, um, yeah. So I mean, yeah. So I think it was actually Richard Nixon in 1970 that decided that D.C. needed to become an international city, and in order for it to become an international city, it needed to become a cultural Sort of capital of America now I think New York still probably has that mantle right but in 1970 if people thought of theater, professional theater they thought New York as the only place to go but now there's theater, professional theaters all over the United States and DC is one of the centers of that
2: fantastic activity. and you were able to see that shift because you've been in DC such a long time oh yeah Yeah.
1: Yeah, and the Sanctuary Theater, which we founded in in the 80s, was sort of uh, a part of that wave, right, of these sort of theaters with professional aspirations that were founded. Now we were at the latter part of the wave, right, because now it's very difficult to get a professional theater going because there are a number of theaters that have been around for 25, 35 years, right, that sort of dominate the theatrical geography. Mm.
2: And uh, apart from having a theater and writing, you also wrote a column, I believe, right? For Mm ten years?
1: It was about seven years. Okay. Two columns, actually. Two Two different sites.
2: So you really got to see this broad overview of the theater culture and the environment of theater in D.C. What theater do you really love to go see?
1: What theater do I really love to go see? Well, you know, I, um, I mean, theater in the United States and maybe worldwide, I don't know, I wouldn't speculate on that, but in the United States theater, because of its cost, and this is even subsidized theater, I mean, a lot, most of this, all the professional theater, except for the commercial theater on Broadway, you know, is subsidized by funding agencies, whether they're foundations or State funding organizations, you know, all of it, the ticket prices tend to be high enough that it's generally supported by maybe the upper 10% of the population. Hmm. <clears throat> so the perspective of theater naturally sort of appeals to that upper 10%. <clears throat> now, I personally don't live in that upper 10%. <laughs> I'm not a member.
2: You're not in the Senate? What do you mean?
1: <laughs> I'm not in the upper 10%. But so, I mean, so at, at one level, I really appreciate theater that sort of has a perspective uh, that addresses that 90%, the other, the forgotten 90% that you very seldom see on the stage. You very seldom see those people presented on the stage, except maybe in sort of mock, sort of or in positions of ridicule, or just utterly misrepresented. Um, and so the rare show that sort of really ventures into the working class, or even into the middle class, um, in some sort of authentic humanistic portrayal, I, I enjoy that. I still, I mean, I very much always enjoy anything that's that's just artistically, stylistically different or surprising. Mm. Right um, now, un- unfortunately, a lot of that kind of theater usually comes from a visiting show from abroad. Now, obviously, the shows that are going to visit from abroad are probably going to be the ones that are more creative stylistically or aesthetically. Um, You know, I'm certain they have a lot of crappy theater abroad as
2: well. It's
1: not coming to to Washington, D.C. So basically those two things I'm looking for when I'm going to see a show, if I'm really going to enjoy it. It's going to have that perspective that's not, you know, the upper 10%, and it's going to be artistically, stylistically sort of experimental or trying something new, a new way of engaging an audience.
2: Absolutely, and do you think that there's anything distinct about Washington D.C. and the theater culture there that's different from anywhere else in the world?
1: Absolutely, there is (laughs) one out of every 20 people who live in Washington D.C. is a lawyer. Okay, so it's the lawyer hub. It's the lawyer hub of the world. I mean, New York is the next closest city with lawyers, and it has one out of every 250. So you're talking about an audience that is extremely literate, extremely verbal, extremely, like, mm, (laughs) linguistically nuanced, right? And so you see a lot of plays that that are very verbal in there. Their presentation. There's one theater that specializes in it and, it, and I've seen a lot of good shows there. It's called the Studio Theater. You know, uh, I actually performed there soon after I came to D.C. back in the '80s uh, when it was still doing more classical work. But now it just does a lot of plays from England. Uh, Cutting edge kind of stuff but they're very sometimes it's just a person on stage and they're talking rapid fire kind of like an
2: Aaron Sorkin
1: (laughs) yeah yeah. you know and the audiences love them and sometimes I I love them too sometimes sometimes it's just like you know it's just too random for me and or it's too like it's just too like rapid fire like what in the hell is the person saying um you know if if you've ever seen a sort of modern debate like they do in high school mm-hmm. sometimes they're speaking so quickly yes. you can't actually hear what their argument is yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah but yeah so that's that's very distinct i think for dc is, is how verbal the the audience is i don't think there's any audience anywhere else that has that level of linguistic sort of
2: that's incredible development yeah that's that's really incredible and I, I do you think that it affects the physicality of the theater as well
1: well, it, it, I think it definitely um, it definitely affects that. Now, some there are there's, synetic theater, which is comes out of uh, uh, it's not the Ukraine. They're, it's a group from the Ukraine, uh, immigrants from, from the Ukraine. Uh, the synetic theater is completely physical, and I think you know they're and they they've achieved some success with their silent Hamlet. Right, so they do like Shakespeare, and it's all there. There isn't the entire
2: full-length production. Yeah, well,
1: well, they 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 do their own adaptation of it, but it basically is it is Hamlet, but it's done through music, movement, physicality. But that particular production had no words. Some of their productions might have a few words here and there. Um, Right, so there are those kinds of theaters where it's sort of like a relief. Mm-hmm. <laughs> from people talking so much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you really get
2: you get both ends of the spectrum right, really. Right.
1: But but for the most part definitely there's there's uh, there's an underappreciation of sort of the physicality of the stage, I would mm.
2: say. And uh, before we recorded it, I remember you saying to me that the length of theater productions has really shortened in the last few decades, you know, with having maybe an hour hour and 15-minute first act and then an intermission, now with a straight 90 minutes, no intermission. And do you think that the millennial culture and the speed at which society operates has really affected theater in this way? And how do you think it changes the narrative?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, one way it changes the narrative is that there are more and more solo performers. One-person shows, mm. right? Um, that you know, 60, 75, 90 minutes at max, right? <clears throat> and with a solo performance, there isn't really any traditional drama on stage, so the conflict between characters is eliminated. So that, you know, it becomes much more of a storytelling form, mm. right? Um, so that's that's definitely has direct impact. Now, also, I mean, with the with the advent of the you know full-length one act. Sort of paralleling that development is the sort of a, a cast limitation of probably no more than six characters. I, again, because of cost, a lot of theaters will are looking for two-person, three-person, no, but no more than six-person plays, mm. right? So, so in a ninety-minute production, you'll have much more probably development at, at some level, development of relationships and of sort of the psychological dynamic because it's focused on uh, a select few characters. Yeah. Um,
2: so it's really scaled down.
1: Yes. So, um, so I mean, and I think that it focuses the narratives. I think the narratives are much more focused in that regard. Now, which this does not mean, it could, of course, you still have the bigger musicals, but even some of the musicals now are two-person musicals or three-person musicals, right? Again, because of the cost, trying to keep those things up. But it ultimately creates a much more sort of intimate space. But then the number of intimate spaces has increased dramatically, right? And uh, there's nothing, I mean, the difference between, there are two Shakespeare theaters in D.C. One is the uh, Shakespeare Theater at Harmon Hall, and it's got like a 1,500-seat auditorium. The other one is the Folger Theater, and it's got like 250, right? The difference between those just... Dis- what those two spaces, how they change a production is just remarkable in terms of just how intimate the Folger productions are and how nuanced they can become because of this... The intimacy of the venue. The intimacy the, of intimacy the, of the space and the, the closeness of the audience to the actor, right? <clears throat> the the Harmon Hall has done some magnificent productions, but they tend to be... The spectacle is much more emphasized, you know, and you really can't get as... You can't focus as on much on the details of behavior on the details of interactions as much. So yeah. So yeah. This definitely changed the narrative.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. We're gonna take a short break and then we'll be back with Michael Oliver. <laughs>
0: I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about Camp Clarity and give you some details. It's pretty much the most awesome week in Bali. Adventures, water temples, cooking classes with amazing workshops and deep work for women to get the resources, tools, community, and support to move forward in our lives the way that we want. Sharing and really all leveling up. So it's a pretty awesome experience. If you feel called to come check it out at www.joincampclarity.com. That's join J-O-I-N-C-A-M-P clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.com if you feel like it's something for you. So all the details are there and it's just an awesome week for women in Bali. All right, so we're back today on Stay Wild with my guest, Michael Oliver. Welcome back. And before the break, we were talking about your history in terms of poetry,
2: performing, writing, and then moving into really the theater culture of D.C. and how it's reflected in the overall overarching political culture of D.C., right? One in 20 people as a lawyer. Pretty incredible. Um, what do you think is the future of theater in D.C. with that kind of audience, with the current political climate? And what do you think is the overall future of theater in America?
1: Well, that is a question that theaters in D.C. are wrestling with, right? I mean, the majority of theaters in D.C. understand all too well that their audiences are aging, right? <clears throat> Particularly, I mean, the, the wealthier the theater, the, the more expensive the productions, more the, the older their audience, mm. right? Which doesn't mean to say that there aren't some theaters. Uh, Woolly Mammoth is a great theater in town called Woolly Mammoth, and they have a much more 30-something, 40-something audience, right? Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, there doesn't seem to be... And they're also, they're also very aware of the fact that their audience tends to be this 10%, right? <clears throat> but with the increasing polarization, economic polarization of America, they realize that that 10% is probably going to soon be 9%, <laughs> 8%, unless there's some kind of economic re- rearrangement that occurs, redistribution that occurs, which there seems to be no sign of yet. All right? so... Um, <coughs> So theaters are wrestling with that, mm. right? Um, most of what I've read about theaters in D.C. doing, they're trying to find ways to make theater more interactive. The the younger audiences are much more eager to interact with the creativity that's occurring on stage than simply being passive spectators, mm. right? So there, you know, there have been productions where uh, everyone uh, takes out their cell phones during a show, and they sort of uh, text message an actor on stage what to do, right? So just to try to increase again that kind of interaction. Um,
2: wow, that's such an interesting way of engagement.
1: <laughs> that, you know, yeah. that's one of the experiments. There's a lot of different experiments, and then clearly there's there's a lot more. Actors sort of coming down into the audience and trying to engage people that way. Um, I mean, improv. There are a lot of improvisational troops in D.C. now. Uh, none of them uh, are as successful as a couple of the troops in Chicago that are actually have become professional improvisational troops.
2: Yeah, they are, prov- and they funnel a lot of people into Saturday Night Live and right and a lot of yeah, the you know, bigger- City group. Um, yeah. Um,
1: same in LA, I right, think. There's but improvisational troops tend to be very, they engage audiences much more. Right, so I think definitely the, the future of theater is one with where there's more, increasingly more audience engagement, mm-hmm. um, audience interaction. And a part of just the, the increased intimacy of the space uh, <clears throat> allows for more audience engagement. The more intimate the space is, the more likely you are to engage an audience. Um, so that, you know that's definitely true, and then as I, we mentioned before the break, you know the cast size are decreasing, and <clears throat> so the you know the, um, the chances of an audience and a couple of cast members sort of getting to know one another is increased. A lot of theaters turn their lobbies into interactive spaces, or sort of around the theme of the of the production you know, where they're hoping their audiences will come to the... will interact with that theme, and again, using the cell phone. The cell phone seems to be people's main way of communicating with the world. They'll sort of connect with other audience members in the lobby space, see the show, and they're trying to get them to then tweet and connect with people after the show. Anyway, so there is a lot of that. There's definitely a lot more... uh, A number of theaters do a lot more uh, discussions and forums... Related to the themes of the show, the ideas of the show, because um, one of the positive developments that I've noticed in the last couple of years is that there are more and more theaters who are taking on the sort of uh, racial tensions in the in the country, the the immigration issues, and the so they're becoming more relevant. They are trying to become more relevant. Um, Not the real big theaters, but the but the smaller theaters are becoming more relevant. And a part of that is to have forum discussions afterwards. So it's not just the production that the audience sort of experiences and then goes home. They can then go to the forums, and so they're really trying to create a community, if you will, Uh, which is a good thing. Um, You know, because I I mean, if, if theater doesn't create a community, right? Then I don't think it'll survive it's always dependent upon you know, that 's just me it 's always dependent upon the fact that it's it is a community. The whole notion of a community theater in some sense is a misnomer, even a professional theater is ultimately a community theater right because it really depends upon the community of people that have that regularly attend that theater yeah. and interact with that theater and the, and the ideas and, and messages of that theater mm. um, so I mean I think that's the real future. Uh, <clears throat> because ultimate theater, unlike most other art forms, I think, allows for genuine human engagement, right? And as long as, ultimate theater has to sort of stay true to that fundamental principle, that it's human engagement. So even though people are in their cell phones, they're taking <laughs> pictures of the world <laughs> in the theater space, they're encouraged to sort of look, each other Unplug. in the eye and actually talk to one another and actually discuss with one another. So the more the theater can encourage that kind of interaction, I think the better chance it has of actually surviving. Because it, that's its niche, human engagement, human interaction. Two people, three people, a dozen people, a hundred people interacting, getting to know one another, sharing some common bond.
2: Common experience.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, the theater event becomes the common experience they share. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, and stay tuned because Michael will be reading today's toast poem.
1: Driving Route sixty six. The highway's supposed to be the convertible's dream. Not another Chevy in sight, much less a station wagon or a motorhome. Black hair slicked back like a sea lion, short-sleeved arm dangling out the window, cool as a lucky strike. Blonde on a mission, scarf synced with her pony, flapping like a live wire. She straddles the bucket, screams, Goochie-doo, Goochie-doo. How that? dream has crashed. And I'm not talking James Dean on a bender. It's not just Detroit that's bankrupt. It's this piston-pounding side-view mirror object at a distance. Heat stroke, stab me, gag me with carbon. Stuck, trunk to grill. That's roadkill on cloverleaf. Now I have SUVs, plump as whales, sliced between bumper and headlight. When this red Mazda with a short-haired brunette yapping on her cell phone, she reads my speedometer through my rear windshield. Now this buff ex-marine in a pickup, with a flamethrower scorching out under his hood, he takes the brunette's place when she squeals off the uprant to Den- Denny's and a gym date with some Derek the Dapper Dick while my Raider of the Lost War keeps flashing his high beams. Jerk pointing to his right. I hit 75 in my 55 mile an hour. Jerk all you want, numb nut zone though I'm just one acid reflux away from slamming on the brakes to watch his butch hairdo fly like a paratrooper on D-Day. And no, I'm not a masochist, though 85% of rush hour drivers see therapists, 41% 41% sadistic as stink bugs and twice as plentiful. And don't get me started on sadomasochists, a startling 33.6% wax philosophical about head-ons with pylons. Isn't it time we stop taking our crushed hallucinations of Hollywood Beach Week, that? Funicello, out of bikini and top, out on everyone with an etzel. I know desire is important, like popcorn at a drive-in, and the West is no longer wild, and a good war is ridiculous. But it's not anyone's fault if dreams croak, if chaos theory ruin the predictable, or even if the exceptional isn't what it's hyped to be. So join the herd, you jackasses, and behave like a file clerk. Stop role-playing Mission Impossible on your way home from IHOP, and it's all you can eat pancake special.
0: All right, humans, big thanks to Michael Oliver for coming on, sharing his journey, sharing about his creative process, and that beautiful poem. As usual, if you're liking the show, subscribe in all the places. You can find me on Instagram at Norma Jean Loves Doodles. And you can find out all about Camp Clarity. We have some exciting dates coming up in February and April at joincampclarity.com. That's www.joincamp.com c-l-a-r-i-t-y dot com. It's a really amazing week for empowered women to level up with authentic Balinese experiences, joyful workshops, and so much more. It's incredible. You know, you just have to come. You have to show up and the magic happens. Thanks again, little humans. And until next time, stay wild. So we keep on keeping on